Kasai, gender inequality is a challenge. It remains as a challenge. Due to the deeply rooted patriarchal norms, women and girls are strongly disadvantaged compared to boys and men. It is our challenge as practitioners to aim for the systemic transformative change. People should believe that gender equality is really important. If we are 52% of the population of Brazil, why we are not 52% of the members of National Congress? Governance frameworks, that is, frameworks that determine political and social relations and power dynamics in society, can promote gender equality. If we're operating in a federal system and we want to think about advancing gender equality, then we need to know what are the things that are conducive to its advancement and what are the things that might stand in our way. This is Forum Fedcast, Episode 4, Gender Equality, The Federal Advantage and Disadvantage. Inequality is one of the fundamental causes of global poverty, instability and conflict. Gender inequality is perhaps the most enduring and pervasive expression of inequality around the world. Discriminatory practices, attitudes and social norms limit women and girls' ability to reach their full potential and contribute to their societies on equal terms with men. Gender equality is central to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, reflecting its importance as part of efforts to improve the lives of people all around the world by 2030. The UN recognizes gender equality as a necessary foundation for a peaceful, prosperous and sustainable world. Some progress has been made in recent decades as a result of concerted efforts by women's rights organizations, national governments and the international community. Globally, more girls are now in school than ever before, the number of women serving in parliaments and other leadership positions is increasing, and the maternal mortality rate has decreased significantly. However, despite these gains, many substantial challenges remain, particularly in relation to violence against women and girls, and a deficit of women in positions of political leadership. Moreover, the COVID pandemic is anticipated to worsen pre-existing inequalities suffered by women and girls, and potentially halt or even reverse advances in gender equality. Gender inequality has many causes, but governance, its structures, processes and institutions is a domain with the potential to play a key role in advancing or potentially inhibiting gender equality. From political participation to lawmaking, policy development and service delivery, governance systems are integral to the daily lives of women and girls. In this three-part series, we'll take an in-depth look at gender equality and federal and decentralized governance. How does a federal or decentralized governance model affect gender equality dynamics? Do federal and decentralized systems provide opportunities for advancing gender equality? And what can be done to support progress towards gender equality in federal and decentralized contexts? We'll explore how these dynamics play out with governance and gender equality practitioners from Canada, Switzerland, Ethiopia, and Brazil. So, to get started, What do we know about gender equality and federal and decentralized governance? In October 2020, the forum released its Gender Equality and Federalism Report, the result of a two-year research project on the subject. 
To tell us about the findings, we spoke with the project lead and report author, Dr. Christine Forster of the University of New South Wales. But before we get to the findings, what was the purpose of the study? There were a number of purposes at the start. First of all, of course, focusing on the importance of governance issues to gender equality. Second, I think, although there is a growing body of country-focused research on gender and federalism, there was at that time no comprehensive global study of how federal and decentralised governance impacts on gender equality, including comparisons between different countries and different regions. There was a need for a very broad review to assist work and gender equality initiatives on the ground in federal and decentralised contexts. Because of my work in Myanmar, which was almost exclusively on federalism and gender equality, that had really sparked my interest in a global exploration of the issues. And I had been reading a lot of the literature that's out there. And as I say, it was very country focused. So it really interested me the idea of an opportunity to do a kind of global project, just to broadly compare all the different federal countries across a range of different issues. It just seemed like a very important and worthwhile project. Gender equality issues are multifaceted and complex. What kinds of challenges are faced in federal countries? Sosena Mulatu, gender specialist at the Forum of Federations, identifies some of the problems women and girls face in Ethiopia. I can say gender inequality is a challenge. It remains as a challenge. Due to the deeply rooted patriarchal norms, values, women and girls are strongly disadvantaged compared to boys and men in several areas, including education, health, decision-making, political participation, basic human rights. When we see more specifically the key gender equality challenges related to governance, protection of men's rights can be mentioned here. Limited access to justice, gaps in law, the implementation of law are the main obstacles in the protection of women's rights in Ethiopia. Women have limited access to justice as a result of cultural, social, economic, and other barriers. Many women are not able to use the legal system to protect and enforce their rights because of economic reasons and restrictive social norms. Gaps implementation of existing laws, interpretation of laws, Loose application of penalties for violation of women's rights are also a problem associated with women's protection of rights. For Ursula Keller, Senior Policy Advisor and Head of the Governance Unit at the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, there remains a need for policies and projects which foster systemic transformative change in relation to gender equality. There is a wide field from just including women by numbers as beneficiaries in a program to actually systemic transformative change where you address the root causes. The very persistent social norms, violence against women, issues around the lack of time women have to actually become economic and political actors, having their own voice and agency. So I think there are still a lot of gaps there. And it is our challenge as policymakers and as practitioners to really be persistent and to aim for the transformative change, not just be satisfied with having the quantitative 
and the numeric uh, representation of women. It's really about having the more substantive agency and including issues around power. I think globally, there is also a new feminist movement. Gender equality is high on the agenda, while at the same time, of course, we also face new backlashes which sometimes they are part of democratic backslides as well. And then coming with toxic masculinities, right-wing populist and conservative governments. So as much as has been achieved, as much we have to continue actually to defend it because it's never linear. I think that's very important. One of the key challenges is women's double burden managing their responsibilities in their dual role as primary caregivers and economic actors. One of the obstacles for women to fully participate is often their multiple responsibilities. A lot of care responsibilities in our countries is the lack of childcare provisions. It's just this multiple responsibility that actually don't allow women to take on more public role or go for a career. And so it's really about the time issue and the possibilities. So it's about sharing these care responsibilities. But doing that, of course, requires to open up our ideas and the very entrained gender roles of who is the caregiver. It's the mother and it's the woman, as against the father and the men that are the breadwinners and the public figures. Ilana Tromke the Director General of the Federal Senate of Brazil, has personal experience of the inequalities and prejudice that often accompany women's double burden. Here in Brazil, we don't have really equity between men and women. So we have not so much women in CEO levels, in direct levels, not in private area, neither in public area. Here in Brazil, it's not very rare that some women when come back with the license of the maternity that here in Brazil is six months be fired because women need to decide that or want to be a good professional or you want to be a good mother. And I can tell you by my example, once someone from my family told my oldest kid that I was not a good mother because I decided to be a good employee. I decided to grow in my career, so it will be impossible. I made a choice, and my choice was the Senate, not my kids. And as Mark Banzet, Director of Natural Resources and Governance at Global Affairs Canada, points out, alongside inequalities stemming from social norms, In many countries, women and girls face outright discrimination in relation to their legal rights. Women are legally discriminated against in more than 150 countries around the world. In fact, even in Canada, it's within my lifetime that the last legal discrimination was was abolished. If my understanding is correct, it was that women were not allowed to be uh, submariners in our Navy, the Royal Canadian Navy. Even in Canada, it's not a, a distant history. But it just it underscores the importance of working to to address issues of discrimination. And, and these are fundamentally governance. Women are prevented from pursuing careers because of their gender. In some countries, women also face restrictions when it comes to registering a business, inheriting property and owning land. 
Nearly one-third of developing countries do not guarantee the same inheritance rights for women as they do for men. These limits on women's economic autonomy can also be seen at the household level, with one-third of married women in developing countries having no say in major household purchases. So, in the context of the ongoing inequalities faced by women and girls, what did the research find out about the relationship between federal and decentralised governance and gender equality? One of the key findings to emerge from the project is the concept of the federal advantage and federal disadvantage. But what does this mean? So those concepts really refer to, I guess, the sort of two converse questions that one might ask. One is, is what contexts and circumstances does a federal system create opportunities and advantages for the advancement of gender equality? And then conversely, in what contexts and circumstances does a federal system create barriers and disadvantages for the advancement of gender equality? And both questions are equally important because if we're operating in a federal system and we want to think about advancing gender equality, then we need to know what are the things that are conducive to its advancement and what are the things that might stand in our way. I found examples of both advantages and disadvantages throughout my research in every area of women's lives. I think that federal systems can create great opportunities, but it can also create disadvantages. And it depends on a whole range of factors, some of which are external to governance and some of which are part of governance. So just to give a sort of an internal governance example would be the way in which powers are allocated. So, for example, take the criminal law. Is the criminal law something that the central government has control over or is it something that each subnational unit has control over? Because the answer to that question has a significant impact on a lot of issues that are important to women. So, you know, within governance, it's complex. And then outside of governance, of course, there are lots of questions around political will, around the strength of cultural and traditional practices, how wealthy a country is, what kind of technical resources it have. There are a lot of different questions that all contribute to understanding how we can advance gender equality within federal systems. If federal systems can provide advantages for gender equality, what kind of advantages are we talking about? For one, the multiple access points inherent to federal systems can be beneficial. Federal systems have multiple access points, which enable women to gather together to lobby for reform measures. This can be really advantageous when the central government is resistant to gender equality reforms. Or alternately, if a subnational government is resistant, the women's movement can turn to another more receptive subnational unit. And I found a number of examples of this. Just to give one example, Iraq, where the women's movement managed to garner support from female legislators in Kurdistan, which is a semi-autonomous region in the Federation of Iraq. And they were really successful at enacting a domestic violence law, hotline for victims of domestic violence, and they even managed to encourage the establishment of a general directorate to receive and investigate complaints of violence against women, and also to provide support services. Now, this was a pretty major achievement in Iraq, 
the other subnational components or units of Iraq were very resistant to any of this kind of change. I believe that the federal structure of the governance system in our context creates favorable conditions and opportunities for women empowerment and promoting gender equality. The opportunities including increasing women political participation. The multi-level governance structure in the federal structure have opened space for increased level of participation of women in political area. Women are increasingly getting representation in the different position levels of governance. The cabinet has also been increased to 50%. At the lower level of administration at Avale and Wereda levels, women representation reportedly to have reached 50% of council's positions. Similarly, good level of representations are also observed at regional councils. When we see the parliament, the number of women has also increased. In 1995, the women representation was 2%, now 39.9%. It's the same with House of Federation. It has increased. In the context of our country, federalism creates multiple access points for women to lobby for gender equality and advocacy. Increasing of women organizations, particularly at grassroots levels, offer another opportunity for increased presence of women in public sphere. This structure advocates for equality and lobby for women's rights in their respective sphere of operation. As Ursula points out, having multiple levels offers multiple access points at those different levels. We can very much relate to this idea of federal advantage and disadvantage, and we would say federal and decentralization advantage, because not all states are federal, but they maybe are decentralized. And I think it's about having these different levels, because we all know there are definitely some advantages. It's closer to the people, it's closer to the specific needs, so that creates closer to the needs of women as well. It's maybe easier to get into positions and have access. At the same time, we have the patriarchal structures that can be particularly persistent on local level. So there is always this both sides. And I think this has been very, very meticulously analyzed along these different areas. I think from our own experience, we can confirm There is a trend in terms, for example, if we look at women's political representation, there is a tendency that they are higher percentage in subnational governments because of the easier access than in the national and in general, higher percentage of women more in the legislative bodies than maybe in the executive positions. For example, in the moment, Switzerland, this is not exactly the case, but I just say that's a general trend. For Ilana Trompka, the local level of government is crucial to advancing women's political representation overall. The political party is the fundamental instrument to increase the participation of women in the parliament. And we need to begin to work in the cities, in the municipality. Because if you have more representatives in the municipality, you have in the state, and then in the National Congress. The things would not change here in Brasilia. They need to change 
in all 6,000 cities around Brazil. And then the number will grow, grow and grow. While multiple access points are an advantage of federal systems, they also represent, in particular contexts, a federal disadvantage. It has to be also noted, though, on the point of multiple access point, that this also creates opportunities for conservative actors to block progressive reforms. To give an example, the issue of abortion, which is controversial in every country, whether it's unitary or federal, we saw in a number of federations, just to give a couple of examples, Argentina and United States, conservative actors in subnational units blocked progressive reforms and actually introduced some very restrictive rules around abortion. Forum Fedcast is brought to you by the Forum of Federations, the global network on federal and evolved governance. Researchers have identified the capacity of federal systems to act as a laboratory for policy innovation and transfer. This creates opportunities for advancing gender equality, another federal advantage. Another really interesting finding was in the area of innovation, experimentation and policy transfer. So general federalism studies make the argument that there's lots of opportunities in federal systems for states, subnational units to try something new, do something innovative, and then for that to be transferred to other subnational units. And what I found in my research was lots of examples of this in all areas of women's lives, such as in service delivery, violence against women, economic empowerment. There were lots of examples of this. One of my really favorite examples was in India, where a village called Pitplantry And as many of you may know, in India, historically, girl children have not been favoured. And this is really problematic for lots of reasons. But in this village, every time a girl is born, 111 trees are planted. And a fund is established for that girl for when she reaches the age of 18. And got a lot of publicity and everybody thought this was absolutely amazing. And it has gradually been adopted in other states who have looked at this and decided that it's a really innovative example. In Switzerland, the federal system allows for policy transfer between the different levels and units of government. As Ursula explains, this feature was central to women all across the country attaining the right to vote. If we look at the women's suffrage, it's interesting how the level played and how the federal system inhibited or actually then supported if we look at the history, there were several failing of national votings for women's suffrage from 59 and before. But then there were some cantons that actually gave women the voting right in their cantons. So they had this autonomy they used, and it started with the Swiss-French cantons. They started to change their cantonal constitution and gave voting rights. and that made a kind of a spillover effect into other cantons. And when the next time in 71, the voting came, it was already actually quite an easy go. It was not fully easy, but it was just like it became already a bit done on the national level. It was just completing 
what the different subnational levels one by one put into place. It's a nice example of how the local level can be the laboratory and can be the driver for change, for gender equality, because it was easier to get this voting done on a cantonal level. On the other side, there was one canton in eastern Switzerland, very tiny canton. It was a tradition to vote in the communal place with hands up, and that was such a strong local tradition. So they just denied their women the voting rights on cantonal. They couldn't on federal because on federal they got, but on cantonal level, they denied it until into the 90s, until somebody brought this as a case of discrimination to the federal court. And then federal court ordered them to give it to them. So there you saw that the national level actually then was the guardian and the protection of those rights. Who had to impose it on that last canton? This was 91 when it got into force. In Canada, Quebec has arguably taken the lead in developing innovative and progressive policies to support gender equality. In Quebec, gender equality has been laid out through things like pay equity legislation. There's also generous support for childcare programs. This has helped to narrow the gender wage gap in the province of Quebec. But what I've actually kind of find kind of interesting is Quebec's discrete system for maternity and parental leave. And what I find really interesting just in this context of men is that there's a specific amount of time, I believe it's five weeks, that's set aside for a father to use. The idea is to encourage caregiving and to encourage that engagement of fathers with their children. And just to underscore that personal connection can happen in terms of the role of men in in gender equality, you know, right at the home level. At the local level, civil society organizations can play an important role in supporting innovative projects designed to advance gender equality within local communities. We have a movement in Brazil in the last four or five years that women are decided to create their own groups, not political parties, but civil groups. So as the men do not open the doors for us, we decided to do ourselves. So nowadays we have groups of women that decided to work in the society, not as a political party or not yet as a political party, but very important groups that work with civil population. And you know, nowadays we have a very tough time in Brazil because of COVID-19. So these groups that are composed just by women are having a huge, a huge participation that maybe this civil organization can in the future be a political party or the women that are appearing in the civil organization can in the future be candidates. Another advantage of federal systems is that governance is closer to local communities. This can provide more opportunities for women to participate in local decision-making and shape the services delivered to them. Another important finding was that federal systems mean that governance is close to community and that for women, this might mean that their needs are more readily met and seen and also possibly make it more easy for them to participate in public office. My research found examples of this. Just to give another Indian example, their 
panchayat system, which is the village governance. In India, they introduced a gender quota in 1992 for 33% of the places on these village committees to be women members. And now in 2021, women have nearly 46% of seats in these village community committees. Unfortunately, a similar quota hasn't been adopted at the state or national level. The federal structure enables the delivery of public goods and services to be administered locally, which is closer to the community, advantaging women and girls. There is evidence of successful health and education policy at local levels, facilitating improvements and rising equality in primary service provision. It has been observed as a real progress in reducing educational disparities between boys and girls. It has marked achievement in increasing the number of enrolled girls and boys across different regions. Commendable results are also observed in the health sector, where through the deployment of health extension workers, significant gains in health sector, women's health in relation to certain indicators, HIV prevalence rate, reducing maternal mortality rates, increased access and use of contraceptive have shown improvement. Ursula and Mark believe mainstreaming gender into service provision and budgeting at local level is crucial for service delivery reflective of the needs of women and girls. How does the public sector work for women? We should make this analysis. There we have to make the analysis of what are the services that a government, be it on national or local level, what are the services? Are they conducive to gender equality? Do women have equal access? Are they able to afford those services? Are they involved in the planning, in the decision-making about these public sector policies? In short, it's really about mainstreaming gender or having a good gender analysis on both the public sector management and policy making, how to make that gender responsive and at the same time ensure voice and empowerment of women as citizens to really participate in all this. We have several programs on gender responsive budgeting, like in Kosovo, Kyrgyzstan, Bangladesh, Bolivia. And usually this gender responsive budgeting is integrated project lines as part of broader local governance programs. These are never standalone programs. And the aim is there to promote gender equality and social inclusion more broadly and improve services through inclusive decision-making in and through public finance management. So it's about mainstreaming budgetary processes more broadly, but with a focus on local level governance on local level, it's very close. It's this multiple access point, this proximity that comes into play. Doing gender responsive budgeting, there is, of course, there are technical aspects. So you need some kind of literacy in financial things because women and even up to gender experts would say, oh, no, on this, we don't really have the thing. While at the same time, you have the finance people who are very technical and who maybe think a budget has nothing to do with power relations. Why, this is not the case, right? You have to have a certain understanding and awareness of how is a budget coming? How is actually decisions on 
how much money we spend on what. Budgets represent needs and priorities of people. That means you need also people have a say and jointly discuss what are these priorities. So it is a lot about getting different groups of people, civil society, especially also women, into these bargaining and decision process. The delivery of public services, so things like education, health, and social services, need to be designed with the needs of women and people in vulnerable situations with their active participation and consultation. I'm a federal government official. This, this doesn't just mean working at the federal level. It also means working at subnational levels, whether they're the sub-sovereign level, like a state or a province or a canton, <laughs> or working at, at levels uh, even more beneath that, for example, at the municipal level. And I know in some federations, those are actually constitutionally uh, established. So it means working all across the government system of the country. In Canada, uh, since 2015, for example, Canada has provided over $90 million to projects that contribute to increasing the participation of women in municipal governance in Africa, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and the Americas. The fact that governance is close to the community in federal systems, however, is not always beneficial for gender equality. The report also found, though, in terms of close to communities, some disadvantages, particularly in areas like family law and family relationships, where powerful elites in different regions of some countries were able to sort of escape any kind of international guidelines about what family law should look like, and were able to sort of entrench discriminatory practices, traditional practices against women. So that's a disadvantage as well that we can't ignore. Another important federal disadvantage is that in federal systems, it can be very challenging to establish uniform rights and opportunities for women and girls across the whole country. There's also the argument that federal systems lead to fragmentation and inconsistency. A fragmentation can occur kind of in two ways. One, it's the lack of ability for the central government to introduce reforms that are good for women that are then going to be countrywide because of different subnational units have the ability and the power to make their own rules and implement their own policies, then the central government is hindered in their ability to roll out reforms across the country. And there were certainly examples of that being frustrated. A good example is Mexico, with a very progressive central government trying to roll out progressive reforms in the area of women's reproductive rights, and then the different subnational units blocking those reforms and refusing to adopt them. And the second sort of fragmentation issue is around the women's movement. I did find that in some countries it really did restrict the women's movement because they had to divide their resources between the central government and the subnational units, and they were kind of fragmented in their approach. As Sosena explains, the problems caused by fragmentation are effectively illustrated by the case of family law in Ethiopia. One example is the division of authorities between the federal and regional states allocate power to legislate on family matter to regional states. The exercise of this right in Ethiopia has resulted in many regional states developing their own family laws. However, some regional states like Somalia and Afar have not adopted their own regional family laws. 
These regions are not harmonized with that of the federal revised family law and the international human rights standard. So these regions continue to apply their previous discriminatory family laws that highly affect the life of women and girls. So I can say the opportunity that have been provided through federal governance have not been fully realized. Some of the barriers are the institutional mechanism responsible for ensuring the mainstream of gender in various policies and programs are very weak. We have weak coordination mechanism and accountability that have resulted in limiting the opportunity. Countries adopting a federal form of government have a special opportunity to embed gender equality principles within their governance institutions. Another finding was in relation to new federations. New federations have really particular opportunities because of institutional newness. And the fact that often when a new federation is formed, a new constitution is drawn up and adopted. Constitutions are a great place for ensuring the protection of women's rights in the form of strong equality and non-discrimination provisions, affirmative action. You can put gender quotas into constitutions. A lot of positive things can be done here. Just to give an example, when Nepal drafted their new constitution in 2015, they provided really quite astonishing protection of women's rights in areas not traditionally included in constitutions, things like reproductive health. They had a particular section on protecting women's rights, their right to employment, their right to education, to be free from violence, to access social security. These are all really positive things to see in a constitution. This is Forum Fedcast. The legal protection of women's rights in the constitution and other legal frameworks is a necessary foundation for advancing gender equality within society. I think it's really important to advocate, support the increased protection of rights through the strengthening of the national constitution. I think having a strong legal system is important. I am a lawyer, of course, I have that view, but I do think it's very important to have the legal framework as strong as possible. And then to work on subnational constitutions. If they don't have subnational constitutions, then I think advocating for the introduction of them. And then, of course, making sure that they all comply with international law and international standards of human rights. I think it can be really important. I think also in the protection of rights, using those multiple access points to advocate for women's rights. So if you see that there's a particular subnational unit that's very receptive to gender equality, then focus your resources on there and try and make any changes that you can. Even a small change can lead to bigger changes. The process of federalization or constitutional reform provided a federal advantage for rights of protection of women in Ethiopia. The 1995 constitution that drafted during the shift to federal system contains a powerful equality and non-discrimination provision that also protects the gender-specific rights. Our constitution clearly indicates the rights of women. It is aligned with the international legal instruments. It guarantees the right of women and equality with men. This is especially important inequality regarding employment, marriage, property, and land ownership. 
having recognized the historical legacy of inequality and discrimination of women, our constitution provides the right to affirmative action for women in order to fight inequalities and leveling the field of equal participation of women in all aspects in political, social, and economic life. It was interesting to think about what is actually supporting or inhibiting. I think more broadly is when it's really about protecting the basic rights, women's rights and gender equality, it's usually the national level. I think more broadly one can say it's the constitutions, it's family law, it's these levels that really have to provide these basic protection. But for innovation and dynamics, the lower level can play a role. And if you have a failing state, a fragile state, and the national frameworks doesn't work, I think then women's rights are least protected. And then maybe even the local level may become an important protection level. I mean, you have to go back to the more private, patriarchal protection of the local community to refrain. But more broadly, I think it's really the national constitutional frame that provides the basic protections. What I would say is that governance frameworks, that is, frameworks that determine political and social relations and power dynamics in society, can promote gender equality. For example, legislatures can promote the legal empowerment of the poor women and other groups living in vulnerable situations by passing laws that promote access and inclusion of such groups. This can include issues like simplifying the procurement of legal documents, certificates, property titles, and easing procedures for the claiming of assets. When women and girls' rights are enshrined in law, it helps to protect them from the impacts of harmful gender norms which foster inequality. Implementation of favorable policy and legal frameworks partially depend on the extent to which policymakers, implementers, and society at large are receptive of the need for changing social norms and attitudes towards women. Unequal power relations, harmful gender norms, the inability to step away from roles when there's a perfectly good and sometimes better woman that's capable of stepping into that role. It limits opportunities for women and girls. And I would add as well that it limits men and boys to specific roles. It limits men and boys to roles of power and of dominance. And sometimes it's good to be a, to be a, a parent, a caregiver, to be a, a person working in you know, a soft sector. <laughs> you know, there isn't a specific role when it comes to careers for one or the other. And when we reinforce that and we don't engage with men and boys, it, it doesn't help address those challenges. Addressing partnerships between women and men, girls and boys, is crucial for transforming these unequal relationships. First of all, I think that people should believe that gender equality is really important. It's a point that we need to work. This is for men or, and for women, because you can imagine that if we are 52% of the population of Brazil, why we are not 52% of the members of National Congress? If a woman votes in a woman, will be much more than 15%. So this is culture. So this was not natural for us because women voted the first time in 1932. So we have not even 100 years, 80, 80 years. And this is a little bit about how we create women and men. 
And in general, we do it very different. In general, we stimulate man for engineer, for computer issues, for math, and we do not do the same with growth. We stimulate man to compete, to not be shy to ask for a better job or a better salary, but we do not do the same with growth. We stimulate the man to learn with paternity, for them to be a complete in the market with the experience of a kid. And we do not the same with women. Caregiving is an area in which traditional gender roles are particularly persistent. I think there is a lot of issues about care and care roles and this whole men care campaigns. It's still very rare men as caregivers, the role of men to support in a caregiving, in a supportive role. So here we touch really on the gender role. And I think there is a lot of work to do, especially with young men. The unequal status of women and men is reflected most starkly in the ongoing practice of violence against women. Violence against women is a really significant issue for women Many would argue it's the most important issue. So I think supporting a national plan to end violence is quite challenging in federal systems because it requires a comprehensive countrywide plan that coordinates service and law and support. Very few federal countries have national plans to end violence. So what can be done to tackle the issue of violence against women? I think supporting collaboration between subnational regions in units on violence against women as much as possible. If you support domestic violence and sexual assault laws in one unit and recognize that that then might lead to a policy transfer in another unit. I found lots of examples where exactly that had happened. In terms of violence against women, it's very important to engage men and boys in this process and supporting innovative projects in subnational units. I think it's really important I think in federal systems, we have to look at the local introduction of some of these kinds of initiatives and not rely on the central government. Did the research find any innovative projects at the local or subnational level? There were a few. I think I'll go with the women-run police stations because that's a, a sort of, I mean, we have nothing like that in Australia. And this was India and in one of the Latin American countries. Brazil. The impact of this was enormous. Women were reporting, coming to the police station, reporting incidents of violence and property theft and all kinds of things. They were comfortable reporting and the response that they got from these entirely women-run police stations was just so different to regular police stations, which will have a mixture of men and women, but statistically we know that it's way more men than women police officers. So I thought that this was a really great model. I would like to see one, you know, in every city, in every country of the world, because I think violence against women is a huge problem and I think it's very difficult for women if they don't feel supported by the police force to be able to report those harms. And in recent years, some progress has also been made in tackling violence against women in Ethiopia. A reduction in harmful traditional practice 
particularly female genital mutilation FGM have been achieved. FGM among young women decreased by 24% between 2005 and 2015. Child marriage have also decreased from 63% in 2011 to 58% in 2016. Increasing of women organization, particularly at grassroots levels, women development army, women association, women's federation have great contribution for reduction of FGM and early marriage. Despite this progress, violence against women remains a lived reality for women and girls all around the world. There's a real need to really drill down on the whole issue of sexual and gender-based violence, which is abhorrent and is so difficult to get one's head around. But it's such a reality for so many women and girls, in particularly in developing countries, but I, I wouldn't limit it to that. There's a real need for, for engagement, not only from international assistance, but at political foreign policy levels, at companies doing business in countries to work to address these, these challenges at a very fundamental level. And, as Alana points out, violence against women comes in different forms. Not only do women and girls suffer physical violence, they are also subjected to economic violence. As she explains, the two are closely interlinked. Another important thing that's here in Brazil, we have a lot of violence against women. And you know, in a poor country, as my country, this violence is a physical violence, but it's economic violence. What I mean, that when you are in a relation that the other, the man, decided to be the owner of the woman, he decided that this woman won't be in touch with friends, won't be in touch with family, and won't work. So this woman will depend on the man. And if you depend on someone and you have not independence, sometimes you accept things that you won't if you have your own money. Então, in the beginning, the man decided that he will choose the kind of clothes that you use, the kind of people that you talk to, the kind of words that the kind of words that you use, and then he decided to bite you. And in the end, he kill you. One of the most significant areas of inequality between women and men is their access to and participation in politics. In Dr. Forster's view, getting more women into positions of political decision-making is essential for advancing gender equality. There are a lot of different barriers to women's political representation that don't directly relate to governance issues such as gender quotas or the type of political system. And these things, they're very different across all the different countries. But there are things that are in common across all of the federal countries, across all countries probably, but definitely across all the federal countries in relation to the difficulty of women having a double burden, having to be responsible for domestic responsibilities, and then all the challenges of being in public office which doesn't lend itself to that kind of double life. There is you know, a lack of confidence for women in coming forward to be in political office. There's challenges in communities that don't support women in public office, funding, financial support, all kinds of things that provide 
barriers to women's political representation. And the other thing, of course, is how important it is to have women in political positions because it's almost the most important. All of these issues are important, but if we get women in positions of political representation across all levels, the research shows that we do see change occurring in terms of gender equality. In the next episode in the series, we'll dig deep into the issue of gender equality in politics in federal and decentralised countries. We'll also take a look at the importance of women's economic empowerment and the role of men in supporting gender equality in governance. So tune in next time for more. That was Forum Fedcast. Huge thanks to our guests, Dr. Christine Forster, Sosene Molatu, Ursula Keller, Mark Banzett, and Ilana Tromka. The full Gender Equality and Federalism report is available to download for free via the Forum website at forumfed.org. That's forumfed.org, where you can also find a wealth of other resources on federal and multi-level governance. You can also find us on Twitter, at ForumFed, and as Forum of Federations on Facebook and YouTube. We want to hear from you. Get in touch with the podcast by emailing podcast at forumfed.org and tell us what subjects you would like to see covered on future episodes. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on your platform of choice. This episode was written and hosted by Diana Shebenova and me, Liam Whittington. It was produced by Asma Zribi and Liam Whittington, with production support from Samaya Monroe. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Forum Fedcast. Forum Fed.